Welcome to a new episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin R.L. Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we talk with Dr. Mary Vandenberg about what makes humans unique in the face of scientism and technological advancement. Are humans nothing more than advanced animals? Is human intelligence the same sort as the artificial intelligence we find in computers? Can we talk about a soul without diminishing the body? These are some of the questions we tackle in this episode, and we thank you, as always, for tuning in. About 10 years ago, I was in graduate school working on an essay about whether we truly escape our bodies when we go online. And as I described the argument to a colleague, I expressed doubt that robots would ever be able to do all that humans can do. His response, give it 10 years. 10 years have passed. Who won the bet? On the one hand, I was right. Robots have not replaced human beings. On the other hand, perhaps my friend was right in principle, but just overly optimistic in time frame. There is a certain feeling of inevitability as we face the new advancements in artificial intelligence. Every time we list something that humans can do that robots can't, we feel the need to add the qualifier, yet. But perhaps part of the problem is in locating human uniqueness in what we do. Might it not be better to follow the Christian tradition in locating human uniqueness in what we are? This, in part, is the contention of theologian Mary Vandenberg. She notes that although Christians are united in believing that humans are uniquely created in the image of God, this has been understood in various ways. One popular view is functional, that humans image God by doing something, by ruling over creation as his representatives. Another popular view is relational, that humans image God by relating to God and to others. But both of these aspects, Vandenberg argues, require something more, a capacity to know and be known, something that is intrinsic to being human, regardless of if it is actualized. Such an account, she argues, anchors human dignity and fellowship with God, even or especially in the face of profound disability. As technology advances, it's always worthwhile to ask, what makes us human? And to that end, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Mary Vandenberg. I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my guest co-host, Jeffrey Fulkerson, who teaches philosophy here at Dort and co-directs the Kuiper Honors Program. Jeffrey, thanks for hosting with me. Good to be with you. And our feature guest is Dr. Mary Vandenberg, who is the Jean and Kenneth Baker Professor of Systematic Theology at Calvin Theological Seminary. She's also the author of a book that is the basis of our conversation today, titled Aquinas, Science, and Human Uniqueness, an Integrated Approach to the Question of What Makes Us Human. Mary, thanks for joining us today on the In All Things podcast. Thank you, Jeffrey and Justin. So you and Jeffrey worked together, were early collaborators on a project together. His name's in the acknowledgments. I wonder if you could tell us a bit of the story of the project you were working on. Yeah, so there was a fellowship at um, the Henry Center at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School 
that I was I was accepted to. I think that was the fall of 2018. Uh, it seems like a long time ago by now. Um, somehow COVID always makes things seem further away than they actually were. But um, the project really, and actually Jeffrey could probably describe it better than me. But from my from my recollection and understanding, the project's purpose was really to get science and theology in dialogue. But one of my former he was a colleague in the PhD program at Calvin, Tom McCall, who was the director of the center at the time, said to me that most projects, which I agree, uh, including some of them at Calvin University, prioritize science and theology is kind of there to, um, you know, have a little say here and there, where this project really began with theology. And part of it was to listen to science and, and see how those might interact. But with theology having the priority, which is why it was really exciting to me because it was something of a different angle. Is that a fair representation, Jeffrey? Yeah. And Mary, when you're saying this project, you're talking about the creation project the creation of which project. your research was a part of it. Yeah. So we're trying to catalyze re- thinking in the doctrine of creation. Yeah. Which is, is a great testimony to wonderful book, but you yeah, keep going. Mary. Keep yeah. Going. So the, the year that I was there, um, the focus of the different years was different. It was always creation, but the year I was there was theological anthropology, which is also what I, um, I'll say I tend to specialize in. It's, it's the area, uh, pretty broad, but that, that I zero in on in my teaching and research. So. Yeah. And that's a great lead into the title of the book. This is a book, as the title says about human uniqueness, which is something that many of our listeners will probably already be convinced that humans are unique, created in God's image. Uh, But you note that there are many contemporary challenges to this idea that humans are unique. Uh, For example, the finding that humans share close to 99% of their genome with chimpanzees, or the fact that we exhibit similar social behavior, or even the much more serious charge that if we treat humans as special, that that is actually at the root of many of these ecological crises that we're having. So there's the science part of the title, Science and Human Uniqueness. So why is it important for us to continually be re-examining this, uh, what we mean when we say that humans are specially unique? Yeah, so I'll give a shout out for just a minute that special uniqueness is actually... um, stolen, um, but footnoted, from a man named Heisbert Vandenbrink, who also works in theological anthropology. Uh, And his book took up this question just in brief, basically suggesting that, yeah, we're unique, but that's kind of a nondescript word. So let's talk about this as special uniqueness. And I kind of grabbed onto that and said, yeah, I think that's right. The idea is, when I say, of course, we're unique, Well, the problem with that term is everything is unique. Elephants are unique. Giraffes are unique. Microbes are unique. Um, The question is, how are we unique? And what does it mean that humans are unique? And so when Vandenbrink added that special uniqueness to it, I thought, that's a really good way to get away from the charge. Oh, yeah, well, everything's unique and really zero in on humans are set apart in a certain way. Uh, So how do we express that? And his term, special uniqueness, uniqueness helps us do that. I think think that how we think about humans um, is deeply related to how we treat humans. So if humans are just another animal, does that mean we can treat them like we do other 
animals in creation. Not that we treat animals unethically. Some people do. But most of us eat meat. Um, I'm not going to go there, but let your imagination roll. Um, most of us, or, or many of us, people in my area anyway, I live in kind of a rural area, uh, a lot of people hunt, and that is actually for providing food. But we don't hunt humans. I think the if you think also just about sort of the day-to-day things that happen, if you're a farmer and um, an animal, some sort of a predatory animal gets on your property and starts attacking your livestock. Well, you have every right to defend your property by killing that animal in one way or another, hopefully humanely. We may do that with humans. There's laws against that. Um, if somebody comes in and wants to kill my dog, or I don't have a dog, but if I did, um, well, they can't, they aren't supposed to do that, right? But I can't turn around and kill them if they're threatening to harm one of my animals or property, that's that's not legal. So even the legal system kind of understands, no, there's something different about humans. We can actually kill other animals for various reasons, but you're not to kill a human. Why is that? That's true cross-culturally. That's not just in the U.S. That's just cross-culturally true, even though there's a distinction in some cultures between killing and murder, and we don't need to get into that today. <laughs> so I think that's part of it. I think even even some of the rhetoric around, if I can bring up a topic like abortion, when women talk about fetus or when pro-abortion advocates talk about a fetus as a parasite, what are they saying about that fetus? Well, they're saying it's not human, um, or at least that it's not a human person, whatever that might mean. So as soon as we back off from saying there's something special about humans, it seems to me we run the risk of treating humans as something less than human, of dehumanizing them. Yeah, I wonder, you're a theologian who specializes in anthropology, and so you're always thinking about these questions. What is it that makes us human? What is it that makes us especially unique? And so I wonder if there was a specific scientific question or a scientific challenge that um, motivated you to pursue this project in general. And because this is your area, something you've been thinking about for quite some time, what was it, I wonder, about the science aspect that drew you into uh, into this project? Yeah, probably two things. One, I, the genetic aspect that you brought up already. What does it mean that we're 99%, have a 99% similarity in our genome to chimpanzees uh, or the great apes, if you will? How does that work itself out? Because if I go to a zoo and look at one of those chimps, um, yeah, there's some interesting similarities. There's also giant differences. And when actually one of the most fascinating chapters of the book was the science chapter in part, because I had some really good science friends who helped me find the right materials. But especially the evolutionary psychology was fascinating to try to delineate what is it? What is it behaviorally about chimps and humans especially, but actually crows, whales? There was a lot of things that I had the opportunity to look at super interesting stuff. But at the end of the day, there are things that those animals are not capable of that we are. And why is that? Well, maybe that's that 1%. The other thing was that many um, in the, I'll just say more ecological realm. So you mentioned the ecological crisis. There is one. They want to diminish humans as just another animal. And they're, they'll use that language sometimes. We're just another animal, putting that just in front of it. 
um, that made me really nervous and antsy and um, worried about maybe humans in general, but I will say that a driving force behind it is people on the margins. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. Mary, if I could ask a question here, we've talked about science, sort of contemporary challenges that motivate the book, but your sort of guidance for a way forward is looking backwards to Thomas Aquinas as a reformed theologian. So maybe um, if you could just say a word about why you found Aquinas to be the sort of the, the guide, st- the guiding star for your sort of constructive <laughs> responses to today's challenges. Yeah, so I didn't have a lot of familiarity with Aquinas going in. I knew a little bit. I'd read a little bit. And one of the things that grabbed my attention with Aquinas was this idea of potentiality and capacity um, versus actualization. And the first time I read Aquinas, this is quite a few years ago already, and I, I wasn't reading the Treatise on Humanity at that time. I was just reading it more generally. And he talked about capacity. I thought, well, you know, how does that work? I was actually thinking about disabilities by and um, because my dad had dementia uh, before he passed away, and he's now with the Lord. But that got me thinking, what is it to have dementia and be human? And what are capacities? And I remember thinking, well, that doesn't work, Aquinas, because, you know, my dad's brain isn't functioning anymore. He doesn't have the capacity. Or a microencephalic um, person, they don't have a fully developed brain. They don't have the capacity to think. And I said that to one of my colleagues, who's actually a brilliant historian. He's retired, no longer there. But he looked at me and said, well, Mary, Aquinas is not talking about physical capacities. He's talking about really metaphysical capacities. And it was intriguing to me. So then I started reading, yeah, Aquinas alongside of people like Brian Davies and Eleanor Stump and others, mostly philosophers. Um, And it got, I got it sorted out how that works. What is a capacity? We're not talking about a brain. And in some sense, if humans are a body-soul complex, not a body and a soul, but this holistic body-soul complex, well, then how can you separate a physical capacity as if it's this thing that's disconnected from any metaphysical capacities? And it also gave me the sense that if you could work this out, and I didn't know if you could, but if you could work out that a metaphysical capacity can be sustained, as Aquinas suggests, with respect to the soul, um, despite the lack of a physical body, well, then what does that say about my dad, uh, somebody who's cognitively disabled, um, even like a Down syndrome, or I have a good friend, her son just passed away a year ago. He had a particular genetic disability that basically led him to be able to be developed um, uh, he was 42, but he had about the cognitive and physical capacities of a 12 to 18-month-year-old. So he never walked, he never talked, etc. And I wondered, his name's David. And so David was another driving force behind a lot of what I've done here is, what is David? Who is David? Does David, can David know God? Because there was in the theological realm pushback on how can you talk about the need to know God if somebody doesn't have an intellectual capacity. And I'm like, yeah, need to think about that. So Aquinas seemed to offer a way in to think about this in a way that I found intriguing. Um, yeah, and then I give some reasons in the book why I chose him as well. So uh, I would be interested in hearing, uh, Mary, if you would, a brief digression. Um, sometimes Aquinas is considered the Catholic theologian. And um, <laughs> Protestants, uh, specifically Reformed Protestants, don't read 
Um, there's some historical inaccuracies there, I think. But what what sort of apology would you give to why Christian thinkers should be reading, maybe Catholics generally, generally uh, or Aquinas in particular, for a sort of a Christian anthropology? Yeah, well, um, I think, so if I go back just in my Reformed roots to people like Calvin, uh, the Reformed scholastics, and then forward further to Bavink, uh, those guys did read and acknowledge Aquinas. Calvin actually footnotes Aquinas a fair amount. The Reformed scholastics follow scholastic method. That's why they're called the Reformed scholastics of the 16th and 17th centuries, especially. Um, so I think there's precedent for reading him. I actually I actually don't feel a huge need to make an apology because at, at the core, I think that we are all Catholic. We build on the reputation of the pre-Reformation church. The Reformation wasn't like this, this break in history where everything started again. It's like, no, no, the cry of the Reformation was ad fontes, back to the sources. What are the sources? Well, Scripture, primarily, but Augustine, Irenaeus, Gregory the Great, Aquinas, Anselm. The reformers in my tradition were dependent on all of those people and cite them. So, as well as numerous others, Gregory of Nazianzus, I mean, just list uh, the patristics. You've got most of the people that Calvin would cite, but also many of the scholastics. So, I don't actually like that distinction that these guys are Catholics. It's like, well, yes, so am I. <laughs> in fact, the creeds that I recite every Sunday come out of that Catholic tradition. So, And one of the reasons you list for why you use Aquinas is his precision. Yeah. And there's already been this precision in what you said. Um, it's a bit technical, or at least it may feel yeah. a bit technical for some of our listeners. And so I just ask you listeners to bear with us for a moment. We'll get to some of the, pastor, uh, the pastoral and practical implications of this. And maybe we're already there in some sense, because as you've noted, Mary, the common pushback against basing human uniqueness in an intellective capacity is that it might diminish the dignity of those who have cognitive disabilities, like your friend David. But you say that this is a misunderstanding uh, and make a distinction between intellection as a capacity of the soul versus a capacity of the brain. And so I wonder if you could just say a bit more about this. What does it mean to say that someone like your friend David has an intellective soul, uh, especially in cases where there are some cognitive disabilities? Yeah, so... I'm going to just rely on Aquinas here. When when Aquinas is talking about an intellective soul, that is something that all humans have by definition. Um, it is a type of soul. So Aquinas thinks that animals are ensouled too. Uh, they have a vegetative or uh, you know the various kinds of soul. But but there's various si sorts of souls, and what all humans have is an intellective soul, right? So it's got very little to do with what gets actualized as far as a, a potentiality. But this intellective soul gives a capacity for all the things that humans do do, including thinking. And in fact, that's a primary thing that humans do for Aquinas, is that they think and that they know. And does that mean everybody does that? Well, no, that's where that word potential comes in. So if you think about potential from Aquinas' perspective, David has the potential to think and know, but he can't actualize that potential because of the deformities in his genetic code, right? So he'll never have a fully developed brain like you and I would. 
because of that. As my dad's brain diminished, he could no longer actualize that potential. Uh, but the assumption is that he he's probably doing that now um, because that capacity um, is fully actualized in, I'll say, at the last trumpet, but also likely in the intermediate state. There's some there's some question marks there in Aquinas, but um, but I think it's those three words: um, the idea of of the intellective capacity, so capacity, potentiality, and actualization. I think Eleanor Stump makes also a really great art argument about the idea that a non-embodied uh, being can have um, an intellective capacity, and she just uses God. Um, the Christian tradition as a whole doesn't think that God has a body. God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and truth. And Stump basically writes, uh, I think I have the quote in the book somewhere, that it makes no sense to suggest that a soul can't think or that a disembodied um, entity can't think or doesn't have that potential because you're basically then saying that God can't know and think. So do you need a brain to think? Aquinas really does think they're very, very much integrated and that we there are certain things that the disembodied person can't do. But knowing and loving God isn't one of those things. Yeah, I wonder if I could ask a question about uh, intelligence and what we mean by it is a big part of your argument. And intelligence is something we hear a lot about these days, at least in terms of artificial intelligence. Oh. Uh, there's this question or supposition that computers will soon be able to do everything better and faster than humans. And so now the reduction goes another way, not so much that humans are just advanced animals, but our brains are just computers. And we will eventually build computers that can do all these things, that can have intellection or intelligence artificially, which would, of course, undercut human uniqueness. And so I wonder... Yeah, in light of your work on the intellective soul, are there any implications or guidance that you might offer us in how we think about artificial intelligence? Uh, for example, is that a diminishing or a reduction of the category to say computers have intelligence? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think AI is really difficult, and I'm still trying to sort it out myself how that how that how to think about that um i do think it's important to talk like aquinas talks when he talks about an intellective soul he's talking about the capacity to know the capacity to think versus i'll just say um, when we say intellect or intellection it sounds like something we're doing and we have the capacity to do it but we may or may not be able to uh, to actualize that capacity just like i think the example i give in the book is sight you may have an uh, an optic an optic nerve that's undamaged and could see, but your eye is damaged. So that potential can't be actualized without an eye. You're not going to see, short of somebody putting a probe in your head, which could make you see light potentially. So with artificial intelligence, I think the first thing I I think about is um, is that the same sort of intelligence as human intelligence? I'm not quite sure. Uh, I talk about that a little bit, um, not with AI, but with animals. I mean, like crows, super intelligent birds. I had no idea. They make tools. They can, you know, put these tools down in termite mounds and get termites out to eat. And I'm going, oh my gosh, I kind of knew chimps were smart. I didn't know crows were smart. And then other animals as well that I, that I went through, 
super intelligent. Is it the same as human intelligence? One of the interesting things about chimpanzees that came out in the whole evolutionary psychology pieces, it's not the same kind of intelligence, or it doesn't quite seem so. It does depend on who you ask to some degree. So I think some of the confusion for me with AI is what sort of intelligence are we talking about? Maybe step one in thinking about that is there'd be no AI at all without us. It doesn't exist. It wouldn't even be here except for the you know computer geniuses out there that came out up with it. It relied. I don't know that it still does. It seems to me that everything we say about AI and everything that I want to say, well, it can't do, you have to add yet on the end, <laughs> which is both an interesting proposition and a frightening one. But we only have it because humans developed it. It works and is dependent on human platforms. What does that mean about it? I mean, to some degree, I look at it and go, well, our intelligence is we are dependent creatures, dependent on God. Maybe AI is in some way dependent on us, certainly initially. Uh, But recognizing that it keeps getting better and will AI have the capacity at some point to fix itself? Maybe. But I will say that one thing that COVID should have taught us is that real enfleshed relationships cannot be replaced. So you've got a machine that can think, maybe like iRobot can be your friend. Is that the same? I mean, I remember people telling me that Zoom classrooms would be just like uh, a live classroom. Well, I didn't find that to be true when we had it with our distance program, but we went fully on Zoom with COVID. There is, you can't read a room like you do when there's all those bodies sitting in front of you. And as a grandmother, Zooming with my grandchild in Japan is nothing compared to being able to fly to Japan, play with her, hold her, cuddle her when she cries. I watch her cry on the screen and I'm like, If I were there, I'd pick you up and hold you, but I'm not. And this is no substitute. So it seems that Christians of all people should know the importance of embodiment. Why else would God choose to become fully human? Taking on our flesh and blood, dying bodily, rising bodily. I don't know how that fits, Justin, but it seems to me that there's something about the incarnation something about being in flesh, something about bodies, as well as the idea that humans are the creators of this or the developers of this, if you want to put it that way, that sets it off as not the same. Uh, Mary, you've um, mentioned a couple of times that humans have a different kind of intelligence. We've just been talking about AI, but you said it of animals as well. It seems like intelligence is one of those words that we're all familiar enough that we presume that we know what it is, but maybe we don't know what it means. Um, so maybe if someone's thinking like, what is a kind of intelligence? What kind different kinds of intelligence could there be? Curious how you just say like, what's distinctive about human intelligence? And maybe even if you could talk a little bit about like your own sort of growth of understanding in, in the idea of intelligence or the concept of intelligence in the in the course of writing the book. How has your own sense of human intelligence developed? Yeah. Um, without actually going back into my chapter uh, on animals, I'm going to have a hard, I, I literally, that was a hard chapter to write. And I know something about it, but 
I think actually many people do know something about kinds of intelligences. We sometimes talk about an IQ. Well, an IQ, which is really sort of, we'll just say your measure of smartness or something, um, that's different than EQ, emotional intelligence. And turns out that emotional intelligence can be as important, if not more important, for getting along in the world, right? So even that, like, does a computer, will, will, a, uh, will AI ever have emotional intelligence? I'm always going to say yet. Maybe not. It doesn't yet, but maybe it will. I don't know. One of the things with the chimpanzees that was so interesting when they you compared the bonobos to the other chimps, um, there's just the two, was looking at their capacity for empathy. So that's part of, I'll just say, emotional intelligence and what empathy is. And one of the things that I learned in that section of reading is from those social psychologists is that um, a psychopath can have a high level of empathy. They feel what you feel, and it makes them happy that you're feeling that way because they're sick, right? So even empathy, what is empathy and how do you understand it? Well, um, is a gorilla or I'll just say the bonobos, are they, do they have a psychopathic kind of empathy? Do they actually have empathy? That's kind of a question mark still. And then when you move to sympathy, which is yet another way of re relation, relationship or relating emotion, if you want to put it that way, can they do that? Most say no. That's that idea that you're not only, not only feel for the other person, but you act on those feelings in a way to help. But again, that scientists are, um, I'll just say they're not uniform on how they understand that. But that's what I mean by kind of intelligence is something like relational intelligence, emotional intelligence, intellectual intelligence. I don't actually like to split them all that much because one of the things I think is cool about Aquinas is he doesn't know about all these things per se, and yet he does when you read him, that when he talks about an intellective capacity, he's really wrapping everything that we know about this into one. If I can go back to something you brought up a little while ago uh, with respect to the body and the soul and their relationship. Uh, so in your book, you do this substantive work in Genesis, and you sketch this account in which humans are especially unique because of the way they are created the purpose of creation, and the answerability for their actions. But then you move on to the question of the soul. And as you point out, the concept of a soul that is separable from the body uh, at death, for example, that's been challenged, especially in recent times, as being a Greek idea rather than a Hebrew idea or a Christian idea. And we've had at least one other guest on the podcast who's pushed back on the idea of soul uh, from a Hebrew perspective. You argue that scripture teaches that humans are spiritual, material beings, that we are a body-soul complex. And so I wonder if you could help us sort out how to think about this. Reformed people don't tend to like dualisms other than uh, creator and creation. But I wonder if you would see this as a necessary dualism, body and soul. And how might you help us think about the relationship of body and soul? Yeah, so... It isn't the sort of dualism that is often posited with something like a platonic understanding of soul and body, where the soul is sort of this uh, inhabitant of a body. My former colleague, John Cooper, 
uh, in his book, Body, Soul, and Life Everlasting, and he was one of my teachers, um, I, I just think he's right that what scripture teaches is what he calls holistic dualism, which maybe, maybe sounds a little bit um, paradoxical, but I think, I think he's right. And that's really what I think Aquinas is suggesting, that in fact, in discussions, I had some discussions with some Catholic friends of mine uh, along the line. In fact, I think Jeffrey introduced me to Matthew Levering, and I ran some uh, analogies past him. How do I get this idea of how the two are intimately connected? And I ran some analogies, and he's like, oh, no, that's still too separate, still too separate. And um, I will say that I came up with something. I think it's. I think I used uh, yeast in dough, um, but I'm not sure that's not still too separate, right? It's just tough to come up with something that really gets at what Aquinas is saying, which is no, these things have to be together. They work together. They're a holistic thing. And yet, and this is where Aquinas gets criticized too, for what it's worth. And yet at death, they can separate and the soul can continue to exist because it's subsistent. Um, but that doesn't mean that the body is done. It's awaiting the resurrection and that reunion or restoration that reformed people expect. So as far as the critique about the soul being Greek, my reply is that the current monistic or materialistic understandings of humans could be seen as scientific rather than biblical or Christian. So uh, I don't really know why Greek is a bad word nor that they're necessarily wrong by virtue of being Greek. And I think as far as the Hebrew, I know uh, Old Testament studies over the past 30, 40 years have pushed against the idea that nephesh can be properly translated as soul. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think most of what I learned, and again, working with some Old Testament um, colleagues and whatnot, I I think that that's a losing proposition. Um, I think nefesh can be translated as soul or maybe better translated as the spiritual aspect of a human person, in part because soul has these connotations that are either more modern, pre-modern, or Greek. And I think what the Hebrews have is a very holistic notion of persons, but I don't think that they in any way think that humans go out of existence at death. I think there's numerous Old Testament stories that suggest exactly the opposite. Um, everything from the weird story of the witch of Endor, which I'm not sure what exactly that tells us, the laws against necromancy in Israel, even the story I just read in my devotions of Joseph, when he dies, he it's a common phrase in the Pentateuch that when one dies, they are gathered to their fathers. And people always want to say, well, that just means they're put in the grave, except Joseph is gathered to his fathers when he's in Egypt. His bones aren't carried back to Israel till many years later. It seems beyond the fact that they would be an odd bird in Mesopotamia in the ancient Near East if they didn't believe in some sort of ongoing spiritual existence. Um, and our colleague at Trinity when I was there, Jim Hoffmeyer, who is an Egypt specialist, I went to Egypt with him a few years back, and it's very clear that they have some sort of notion of an ongoing spiritual existence. Israel spent 400 years in Egypt. You think they thought that 
they didn't have a soul after that, if not before. I just think it's insane to think they lived in that culture. I think that's why the laws of the Kramancy are there, because they lived in that culture. God didn't say, don't believe in a spiritual aspect. He said, don't worship them and don't think you can talk to them. Just to help some of our listeners who, again, might be thinking, this is all very technical. Why do we need to think about all of these nuances? And I wonder if you could help us press further into the practical or pastoral significance of of some of these questions. Why would it matter if, for example, we all believe in the resurrection of the dead as the point of the creed, why would it matter to say that there is an intermediate state where that humans have an immaterial aspect, a soul, that continues after bodily death and prior to bodily resurrection? Why should we care? Well, I guess, uh, first and foremost, I think they should care because I think it's biblical. Um, When Paul talks about, you know, I said my dad went to be with the Lord. What on earth did I mean with that? But Paul says he would like to be with the Lord, that in fact, that's far better. Uh, Is he talking about the resurrection? It doesn't sound like it. When Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, what does he mean? Does he mean some abstract way of thinking about today? So I think it's biblical. So if I didn't think it was biblical, I wouldn't advocate for it. Um, So I think it's biblical and deeply biblical, not just sort of a few things here and there, but that scripture interprets scripture and it's fairly consistent. So I think that's one of the reasons. But the, the I, I think the more pastoral reason, actually, um, I quoted a guy named Paul Bloom. I do not remember the name of his book, um, but he's an atheist, and he doesn't like the idea of a soul, and he thinks it should be taught out of you. Um, but he does think it's interesting to me because in his study, a uh, multicultural study, um, numerous cultures and countries around the world, people believe in an ongoing existence of of humans after death. In various forms, it's not ever the same, right? But almost everybody believes that. And he's like, we got to figure out how to get rid of this. (laughs) So it almost seems to me that it's properly basic. So what are you going to tell all those people who, when you're going to perform their funeral, because I teach seminarians, right? They're going to be pastors, most of them, many of them. Uh, When someone says, where's grandma? Well, you know, she's out of existence right now. Don't worry about her. She'll, you'll see her at the resurrection. Maybe, but that's not what they think. The vast majority, and I know um, there's people who do think that. In fact, I've read some theologians who say, I don't care if I have an intermediate state or not. And it's like, well, I hope you're not surprised by the fact that you will have one, but okay. Um, but I think pastorally, you're going to be hard-pressed in most of our more evangelical-leaning Christian churches to convince people that grandma's not with the Lord and that there's comfort in that. There's comfort in knowing that they're not, they're not gone um, in the sense of permanently out of existence until the resurrection, that they're actually enjoying a foretaste of, if we could use a Catholic term, the beatific vision, a foretaste of glory, as Anthony Hookema writes in one of his books. And there's comfort in that. And I think, I think pastorally, you'd have a hard time shifting your congregations from that sort of knowledge to the idea that, that there's not, there's, I'll just give the verse of a song or a piece of a verse of an old song in my own tradition 
that people frequently sing at funerals and will bring tears to their eyes in church. By the sea of crystal, saints in glory stand, myriad in number, drawn from every land. It's pointing to the future, but it's also talking about the now. I don't know. Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses. <laughs> Is my dad there? I think so. Uh, is that sentimental? I think it's biblical, and I think it's deeply pastoral. Can I can I ask another pastoral question for you here, yep. Mary? Um, a lot of times when we talk about the intellect, even in this conversation, we either talked about limitations to the body that perhaps make the intellect um, uh, not reach its potential, or we compare it with animals. Uh, but as a potential, am I right in assuming that also means that there's things that we have to do in our own lives and perhaps the spirit and God working in us uh, and the community around us to reach our own potential? And if that's the case, how how do how ought we to think of the intellect as something that's part of the life of a maturing, growing uh, person and Christian? Yeah. Um, if, if I can, I, I guess... I'll just go back to the tradition again. Look, a growing faith is a living faith. Faith is always seeking understanding. That comes out in numerous of the church fathers and all the way up through people like Bob Inc. So the life of the mind is an incredibly important part of the Christian tradition. If we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as the Westminster Catechism suggests, um, what does that entail? Well, it entails some sort of knowing. How can you know God if you aren't actively involved in getting to know Him through Scripture, through worship, through preaching, through the sacraments? You have to encounter God to get to know Him. And we encounter Him in those ways. I think the more we know God, the more we love God, we might also get cranky with Him. Because there's parts of him we maybe don't love so much, but it's almost like, and maybe just because I'm getting old, it seems like some of the things that used to throw me for a loop when I was 30, I just look at it and go, it's such a bigger picture than that now that I'm 64. Does that answer your question, Jeffrey? It's great. I remember you're reminding me of um, in um, Peeper's account on hope. He talks about hope as... Um, what is it? Eternal youth for youthfulness, um, whatever the word for youth is. That when we're young, we have this big picture of the world, and with age, it shrinks. Uh, but with hope, we have this wide horizon of the world that's always open to us because of God's uh, infinite perfection and knowledge and power, etc. So when I listen to you talk about growing um, in youth with age, um, you 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 um, give me a, a living image of that hope. Yeah. Thank you. And a mature intellect, a mature mind being renewed um, to the glory of God. Well, hopefully that's what we're all doing, right? And that's I, that's why conversations like this are so wonderful, because it helps us do that, I think. It helps me. Well, the book is Aquinas, Science, and Human Uniqueness, an Integrated Approach to the Question of What Makes Us Human. Its author is Mary Vandenberg. Mary, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. When I can't sleep Don't count sheep Instead I try to recall Where all that I lost might be 
Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. Original music on this episode was provided by The Ruralists. The feature song this episode is their song Strange Machines off the album Trying. Check out our podcast with the band or find more information at their website, fullyruralized.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. As always, thanks for tuning in. Aren't we strange machines? Human beings, aren't we strange machines? You and me.